could I move the crowd? First of all, ain't no mistakes allowed. Here's the instructions, put it together. It's simple, ain't it? But quite clever. Some of you been trying to write rhymes for years. But we got this, irritate my ears. Is this the best that you can make? Cause if not, and you got more, I'll wait. But don't make me wait too long, cause I'ma move on the dance floor. When they put something smooth on, so turn up the bass. It's better when it's loud. Cause I like to move the crowd. Good morning and welcome to episode 781 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, brought to you by the Plainex at baseballreference.com. I'm Sam Miller, along with Ben Lindbergh of 538. Hey, Ben. Hi. I used the Plaindex yesterday for an article that I wrote at Fox Sports on Hall of Fame voter clusters, uh-huh. where what you can basically predict about a guy's or gal's ballot if you know, for instance, that he or she voted for Lee Smith or that he or she voted for uh, Jeff Bagwell and so on. And Hmm. uh, Baseball Reference was very helpful in that. That's interesting. What did you find? Oh, you'll have to read it, Ben. (laughs) Can we get a teaser? Who knows? Uh, Here, let me see. I'll give you one fun fact. This is not in the article. Okay, so Sammy Sosa last year got 7%. Of uh, was named on seven percent of ballots. If you voted for Jeff Kent, there was not one person who voted for Sammy Sosa. Forty-six people voted for Jeff Kent, and not one of them voted for Sammy Sosa. Huh? Not one. Interesting. There is something mutually exclusive about Sammy Sosa and Jeff Kent, and um, I do think I there know is. What kind of person votes for Jeff Kent? I don't know what that means about you. Is does that mean you are a a sabermetric That's person, the, or does Jeff, that mean you're an old school person? Jeff Ken, yeah, no, Jeff Ken is a tricky one because, in yeah. some ways, it, what I found that, that with another, oh, I didn't look at Bagwell by the way, I looked at Schilling voters, but uh, uh-huh. I found that in other cases, Bag uh, uh, Kent and Sosa, it's weird because nobody voted for both of them, but the same types of people voted for them in some cases, which it seems to be the black ink voter or the MVP type voter, so not the war voter. If that mm-hmm. makes sense, Bag uh, Kent and Sosa are both uh, below the war standard or the Jaws standard for Hall of Famers, and um, yet you know Kent has had a very high peak and is fa- you know fairly famous for what he was um, mm-hmm. and won an MVP award. Of course, Sosa is Sosa, and so uh, people who voted for Kent or Sosa tended not to vote for guys like Musina and Walker guys who were slightly more quietly exceptional throughout their Uh careers. Uh, So that tends to be what the uh, Kent voter is. But I will tell you that uh, Kent voters generally were uh, more pro Fred McGriff than non-Kent voters. Makes sense. I guess it's just very big hall voters. Well, except except for they were – that's the only guy they were more pro on. Than oh. the than the average, they were they were very low on Bonds, McGuire, and Sosa, obviously Sosa, and they were low on Schilling, which was odd to me because I don't see the connection there. But they were very low on Schilling, and then they were essentially the same as everybody else on all the other main candidates: Edgar, Mattingly, Mussina, Piazza, Reigns, Smith, Trammell, uh-huh. Walker. So uh, Kent voters basically were were low on steroids guys, right? But not low on kind of semi-suspected steroids guys. Like uh-huh. Bagwell and Piazza definitely take a hit from the speculative voters, yes. but but not not Kent Kent voters. Kent voters they do not 
penalize Piazza or Bagwell at all. Anyway, it's mm-hmm. a, I don't know, I, f- I found it to be some interesting results that, uh, go sure, go ahead and read it. Yeah. By the way, speaking of Hall of Fame candidates, deserving Hall of Fame candidates, Mike Messina should probably be the first pitcher to make the Hall of Fame after spending his whole career in the American League. You mean should be like if it were your world, but not. Yes, he, he, should, he will yes, not. I yeah. don't know whether he will be. I'd like to think that he will be. But in a just world, he would beat David Price. Actually, Ben. That actually, actually, Ben. Uh-huh. Actually, Ben. Yeah. In, in a just world, Dave Steve would. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> right. in a more realistic just world. Uh-huh. All right. Uh, I wanted to mention one thing about David Price's contract uh, right. negotiations. There was a uh, report by Bruce Levine that, quote, Cubs' offer to Price was creative at 7 and $161 million, third to Boston and St. Louis. Now, the punctuation in this makes it hard to know which clauses are connected to each other. And so I don't think he's saying that seven and one sixty one is itself a creative offer. Like, it's like we'll <laughs> we'll wow him with 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 the number one sixty one. Like he'll never he's probably never seen that number in any capacity. So I'm <laughs> guessing that that, that there's that basically Cubs offer to price was low but creative. And um, uh-huh. so I'm wondering what you think was creative about it. Uh, one possibility, of course, was that the Cubs uh, would have agreed to move to the American League. Yeah, right. Or uh, he gets to play a position and, on days right. when he's not pitching, so he, he gets bat. to hit. He's the DH, DH on days that he's not pitching. Yep. But otherwise, I wonder what I wonder if we'll ever find out what the creative part of that was. So he said it was creative, but then didn't explain what was creative about it? So far as it I seems, can tell. It seems like it would be the, the obvious follow-up. Maybe it maybe it was incentives or options or something. Maybe he has an opt out after every year. They were going to they would pay him seven years and one hundred sixty one million dollars, but let him play for the Red Sox. <laughs> yeah. Let's see here. No, there is no follow up. I'm going to see whether there is any extra detail in an article that was written. I don't think by him. No, 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 nope. Okay. <laughs> well, it's great. Take his word for it. It like involved like a poem. Yeah. <laughs> There's a, there was, was some short fiction it was involved. The way that it was like a singing telegram offer of a contractor. <laughs> yeah. It was the means of delivery. I don't know. I'd like to know. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'll work my sources. All right. So then, Ben. Yeah. Anything else you want to talk about? No. All right. So the today's transaction analyses uh, at Baseball Prospectus include uh, the Red Sox trading for excellent relief pitcher Carson Smith, mm-hmm. the Orioles signing excellent relief pitcher Darren O'Day, yes. uh, the Royals signing excellent relief pitcher Joachim Soria. Never did figure out how to pronounce it. Joachim? Joachim? I've always been a Joachim person. Yeah, that makes sense. The Athletics, which we already talked about, signing excellent relief pitcher Ryan Madsen, the Rangers signing excellent relief pitcher Mark Lowe, <laughs> and the Cubs signing excellent relief pitcher Trevor Cahill, and the Nationals signing Ollie Perez. There was also a transaction analysis that was in progress and scrapped of the Dodgers acquiring elite relief pitcher Araldis Chapman. And 
So first off, uh, in case anybody is not familiar with that, the news is that apparently a trade was agreed to uh, in which the Dodgers would acquire Araldis Chapman. And then they found out that Araldis Chapman about a month, a little more than a month ago, uh, was had a domestic violence complaint against him in the Miami area that involved him firing a gun eight times. Uh, and so that makes everything... Uh, scary and awful, and the trade seems to be uh, either on hold or dead. And so we're not, I don't think we're going to necessarily talk about that specifically, but about the idea that the Dodgers uh, would have attempted to acquire, that that this would be a thing that they desired, I think fits uh, mm-hmm. into something that I would like to talk about. Sure. Um, Hokeem Soria. Hokeem Soria. According right. to baseball reference. Hokey. I've never have I ever no, I've never heard that one. <laughs> I've heard the other ends of the spectrum. Yeah. So. We're so bad at uh, Spanish <laughs> players' names. I not not me and you. We're bad at all names. Me and you are bad at every name. <laughs> but uh, I really do one of the things I love about ESPN radio baseball broadcasts with uh, John Shomby uh-huh. and uh, Chris Singleton is that they uh, they make a genuine effort to get players' names correct. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's such a small thing. Uh, we should aspire to that someday. We really ought we did. To. I looked up how to say it. So we're, we're trying. Yeah. So, uh, so a couple things here, a couple of different angles here. First of all, well, I don't know. Maybe it's just one angle. So what we've seen is that the Yankees last year went out and made their big purchase a elite top six in baseball reliever, uh, even though they already had an elite top six in baseball reliever. We saw the uh, Red Sox go out and not only get a top six in baseball reliever in Craig Kimbrell this year, uh, but then went out and got Carson Smith, who I think you can make a pretty good case as at least top dozen uh, yeah, right now. I mean, and last season alone was top, I don't know, like, Three. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. He's... The only reason the only reason you wouldn't put him there is a, a combination of uh, you know less history with him and uh, some some apparent decline in stuff as the season went on, uh, mm-hmm. perhaps adding to uh, Koji Uehara, who, when healthy, is also I would argue a top ten reliever in baseball. Mm-hmm. And then we have the Dodgers, who also had a top six reliever in baseball and Kenley Jansen, and adding to him with another top six reliever in baseball. So let's put the O'Days and the Madsons and the Sorias and everybody else aside for now. And let's just talk about this phenomenon. You, you could, yeah, right. Okay, you you could put O'Day in that class if you wanted to. I mean, it doesn't fit into the acquiring multiple types of these guys. Yeah, but right. As That's far why as well, effectiveness yeah. over several years, I know, but O'Day ben, is you could, every you, bit as good. Ben, though, you could also talk about how the Cardinals have Trevor Rosenthal. It doesn't fit the theme. Right. I <laughs> so, just don't want to denigrate Back O'Day. off. Don't want to denigrate O'Day. Just no, because nobody's he denigrating doesn't O'Day. have fancy stuff. But yeah. So uh, this is fascinating for a few reasons. But the, the main reason that this is fascinating is that for 20 years – it has been kind of a fundamental part of stathead orthodoxy that closers are all overpaid and that you shouldn't pay market rates for closers, that they're unreliable, that they're not as valuable as they appear, that they just make too much money for too few innings. Don't do it. Get Keith Folk. 
then trade him for Billy Koch, and then trade him again for Keith Falk or whatever. And here we see three teams, all of whom are rich, but also all of whom are smart and, you know, as most teams are, uh, have, you know, stat head foundations, acquiring two closers. It has now gone from don't pay for closers to pay for a couple. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as many as you can. Yeah. All the closers. And so... I wonder if this means that the market for closers has not inflated with over the past 10 years or whatever as it has with other players that a starting pitcher's you know might cost twice as much as he did 7 years ago but a closer really doesn't like you know the price over the BJ Ryan contract to now doesn't seem to be that big I, so it could be that or it could be that we live in a world that is ever dependent on relief pitchers and that more of your innings are going to be to relief pitchers. And so you need to get more of them. Or it could be that they're simply copying the thing that is right in front of them, that they are just all simple people who saw the Royals and said, we want that. Or it could be that in fact, relief pitchers are much better now than they used to be relative. And that the, there are, um, there are simply more great relievers than there used to be. And where it used to be that you would only want to pay for Billy Wagner or Mariano Rivera, uh, now there might be a dozen guys who are close to that level of reliability, or even more so. Or Mm. it could be that we were wrong all along, and that in fact, J.P. Riccardi, Ricciardi, 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 see? All all people, (laughs) all people. Ricciardi? Yeah. J.P. Ricciardi uh, was right, (laughs) and that B.J. Ryan was his finest achievement. And there's probably other explanations uh, here. So I'm, uh, I want to know what you make of the two-closer model. Because really, I mean, Carson Smith, maybe Carson Smith is overextending this. I don't think so, but maybe he is. And maybe Uohara isn't good enough to, uh, to fit. And so maybe you throw out the Red Sox, maybe. But I, I kind of don't think that you need to throw out the Red Sox. But to have basically the four like four of the five or six best relievers in baseball on two teams right now, and not by chance, not like they were developed by these teams and it just so happened that they came up at the same time, but to actually go out and pursue essentially the best closers to essentially either not close or to displace another one of the best closers feels like a very interesting uh, thing that two years ago was 100% unthinkable. Do we even need to separate the Royals from this oh, and Soria from this? If anything, they are the, the progenitors of this and they seem to always want to have three of these guys. I don't I mean Soria I don't think is really that great. He's certainly nowhere near the, the Carson Smith Kimbrell Chapman class. Right. But they are essentially saying that they want a closer in the seventh inning, which is what they've had for the past two years when they've been good and everyone has envied the back of their bullpen. And it seems like, okay, they let Madsen go and they essentially swapped Madsen for Sori. I mean, the, the terms are almost the same. 322 for Madsen, I'm, 325 I, for, for Soria. No, I'm, I'm not. I refuse. Uh, first of all, by the way, I just want to note that in the previous paragraph that I stated, uh, it was, again, in this hypothetical world where the Dodgers had Aralus Chapman. Of course, right. he's not. They wanted to, yeah. Uh, they wanted to. We're talking about the the uh, intention here. Uh, yes. All right. Uh, 
No, Soria is a setup man. I mean, Soria might Soria could close for a, a for would close for a lot of teams. Soria is, closed last year. He he closed for part this of year. last year. No, he closed for part of last year, and then he got traded to a team where he did not close. And he's he is definitely closer quality. Look, he's one of the thirty guys who would close if they were perfectly distributed around the league. But he got setup man money, right? I mean, he's not getting four years and forty four million dollars. This is not Andrew Miller. This is not a, taking a guy who is. You know, undeniably one of the you know six to ten best relievers in baseball, and then putting him in the eighth inning. Soria is essentially adding him to a team that has maybe the best reliever. Ben, 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 Ben. Yeah, it's (laughs) it's the same principle. It seems to me, it's just stacking awesome guys at the back of the bullpen. They paid well. I think that he fits into the uh, the the larger discussion about reliever value. That is true. Uh, I don't, and it's fine. Fine, you can have it if you want to. But <laughs> it's not Chapman and Jansen in the same bullpen. It's not Miller and Betances in the same bullpen. And I think that's really what is most notable about this. And you know, like again, it's it's more that teams were paying top closer prices either in trade or salary, uh, or opportunity cost to have two of these guys. Soria is, he's, he signed for setup man prices, right? I mean, he's, that's like saying, well, the A's have Manson and, and Doolittle. Well, yeah, they have a setup man too. Or the Astros have Neshek and Gregerson. Yeah, they got a setup man. Yeah, I would, I would dispute that just because Davis, it's like having, it's like having two of the best, right? Davis and Herrera, and then still, Signing another expensive guy. Well, so to me, I it's think, the same sort of trend. Okay. But anyway, let's 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 say I let's let you save face, <laughs> and say and say that what this is is a subset of this phenomenon, whereby mm-hmm. a team now has a one of the very very best eighth inning guys, or one of the best ninth inning guys, but one of the very 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 best eighth inning guys now in the seventh, and so it is still the same idea. It is still. It is still closer creep, right? They now yeah. essentially have three closers. Right. They don't have Batantes and Miller, but you're right. They do have three closers now. They So a team, again, yeah, I think that's fair to say that after years of us yelling, don't sign closers, They the Royals uh, have basically uh, collected three of them. And mm-hmm. uh, nobody's, uh, nobody's selling Royals stock right, right. now. Nobody's dump, dumping their Royals stock over it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so Joe, Joe Sheehan wrote a newsletter article this morning, basically the don't sign the closers article. And he pointed out that maybe O'Day is different. Maybe you pay for O'Day because he's really good. But signing guys like Madsen and Soria just seems to go against the fact that if you look at all the best relievers every year, most of them just seem to be found art like like Madsen, who yes. was nothing last year and then was something. Or like Wade Davis, Davis like Kelvin Herrera. Yeah. Right. Or Andrew Miller. Every every one of these guys are Dylan Batances. Yes. So Joe Joe's point was basically Kenley don't Jansen. do this. You don't yeah, you don't need to pay for these guys because they're everywhere and people don't realize how good the average reliever is right now. And so the average reliever stats look to someone who was, you know, who grew up watching baseball in the PED era when everyone was scoring a ton and people weren't striking out as much. I mean, the average reliever this year had a 3.7 ERA and struck out eight and a half per nine. So it's just, 
I mean, those would have been excellent numbers when I started watching baseball and now they're run of the mill. Mm -hmm. So there is this idea that these guys are everywhere and you don't need to pay for them because there's always a Ryan Madsen that you can just pick up off the scrap heap. And if you can't do that, then it's a failure of your scouting system or your player development system. Or, you know, you can't just take an Osuna from a ball like the Blue Jays did and just turn him into a, a good closer. There are all these different ways that you could get good closers. And so if you pay for one, it's a failure yeah. from that perspective. And and I don't know if, if Joe also made this point, and I don't know if it's still true, but it also, uh, I think it is still also true that good relievers are less likely to be good in a year than good starters or good shortstops. Yeah, or good bullpens relative to good offenses or starting rotations. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, you know, Rex Brothers would have been a top 10 bullpen guy, uh, you know, before 2014, and then he had an ERA of six. I mean, it seems like I haven't seen an updated study of or anything of this sort, but I think that it is also the case that you are more likely to get a dud if you go multi-years for relievers, partly because... Uh, most of them, even though you're asking less of them, most of them do have flaws as baseball players, which is why they ended up in the relief uh, role in the first place. Uh, so, all right. So Joe said that in 20... Even, even in, like the uh, the A's, their bullpen, 2014. Jim Johnson. Yeah, well, 2014, their bullpen had, I think, the third best ERA, something like that. And last year, third worst. So... That's kind of the, you know, that's the model of the A's. They had all these great closers and setup men and Dan Otero, who's just like released now, was great for a couple of years. And and that just happens. So. Yeah. And so I think that basically I, I agree. I think like I've said it before on here, but the the lesson of the Royals is that having great relievers worked. But the lesson of the Royals is not that you should go out and invest all your resources in great relievers. They they did not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, it does seem scary and maybe not actually uh, the best way to just uh, count on, on finding these guys. Uh, and so I understand why teams would you know, look at their bullpen, which everybody's bullpen also always kind of looks like it needs help, like probably mm-hmm. 26 teams walked away from this year thinking, we need to upgrade that bullpen. And yeah. of the ones who didn't, they're probably losing Ryan Manson. And then they think, well, we got to replace Ryan Manson. Uh, and so I see why there is a great uh, desire to go out and get these guys. And uh, But I also do think that that is basically right, that um, that the great reliever is, you know, I mean, Ken Giles, for goodness sake, right? Yeah. Ken Giles was awful in 2013 in high A. And then in 2014, he had one of the five greatest relief seasons of all time. And I guess there's not really any opportunity cost to this. I mean, if you have Ken Giles and you go sign Aroldis Chapman, that doesn't mean Ken Giles isn't still going to emerge. And uh, let's do a quick subtopic here. It, uh, at what point do you get declining returns by having too many great relievers? I would say that mm. if you had, for instance, seven seven Kenley Jansons. Well, the seventh one, you really ought to trade because he's in mop-up work for you and some other team would pay a fortune to have that guy in high leverage. So the seventh Kenley Jansen is not really returning full value to you uh, relative to your needs and his market value. At what point does that kick in, would you say? 
as long as like one of them is the seventh inning guy and one's the eighth inning guy and one's the ninth inning guy, I don't think you're really sapping any value. Maybe you could give yourself some extra value if you were to use them interchangeably in some way. Like if if the Dodgers had gotten Chapman and they'd used him to get saves when lefties were up and used Jensen to get saves when righties were up or something like that, maybe you could get some sort of multiplier effect from it. But the one trend that's been pretty consistent for decades now is that relievers are pitching fewer innings, not as a group, but individually. Actually, if you go back, I looked the other day, if you go back 15 years or even 25 years, the percentage of innings pitched by relievers is virtually the same as it was even then post La Russa, post Eckersley. It's about a third. Relievers pitch about a third of the innings, but the individual relievers are pitching far fewer and there are more relievers in the bullpen and there are more pitching changes and fewer batters faced per reliever. So at this point, just about every elite reliever is a one inning guy. And that's certainly true of Chapman and probably true of Kimbrell and there's, you know, true of Davis and there's the occasional longer outing, but for the most part, they're one inning guys. And so even if you put three of them together in the same bullpen, they're not really, I don't know if they're stealing each other's outs at that point because you have a seventh inning guy and you have an eighth inning guy and you have a ninth inning guy and they really are confined to those innings in an ideal world. Maybe they wouldn't be. And maybe if you were really smart, you would get a few of these guys and and use them for multiple innings. But if no one's going to do that, I don't know if they're really robbing each other's opportunities until you get, you know, four, maybe five of them. When you have an elite reliever pitching in say the fifth inning, when it's (laughs) maybe a a low, low leverage opportunity, or he just doesn't get a chance to do it because the starter is not coming out early enough, then you're leaving outs on the table maybe. But I don't think anyone is at that point. Yeah, I think you could maybe make the case that the seventh inning, you're losing a little bit of it Uh because, you know, there are definitely a lot of games where your starter is pitching into the seventh and maybe you and me and Joe Madden uh, would have a lot fewer of those. But the fact is that uh, there are a lot of games where um, it's two to one and your starters in there anyway. Uh, So you're not going to the seventh inning guy. On the other hand, there are also games where, your eighth inning guy isn't available. And so now it's great to have a seventh inning guy who can pitch in the eighth uh, and ditto with the ninth. Uh, but uh, but I think you're right. At the it, Certainly, if there's any loss in having two, it's minimal. And that's, I think, kind of my, my point that, um, which I haven't made, but I'm going to right now, <laughs> the point that nobody saw coming, uh, that we always thought, oh, well, you know, closers are overpriced, right? But if you start with the presumption that uh, a elite closer is not overpriced, that a Kenley Jansen is worth it or a Craig Kimbrell is worth it, uh, then it's just as true that another one is worth it in the eighth. And so you can go one of two directions. You can say all these closers are nuts and I don't want to pay market rates for any Andrew Millers at all. Uh, and that would be fine. You could probably make a pretty convincing, convincing article about that. But once you agree that one is worth it, I think that you almost have to conclude that two are worth it. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that's what we're seeing is that uh, teams are just sort of appreciating that uh, part of the part of the flip side of everybody saying forever the ninth is no different than the eighth. 
uh, is also realizing that the eighth is no different than the ninth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not paying for saves. It's paying for a different three outs that in many cases are just as important. Yeah. All right. So now on uh, as to the uh, the fact that, you know, eight guys got either signed or traded or uh, almost traded in a day. Relievers are also in in tradition, the uh, most uh, fungible and uh, easiest to find and least scarce kind of in, in a way, the least scarce resource in baseball. And we've all had fantasy leagues and we all know about position runs you know, where there's all of a sudden there's a run on shortstops or a run on catchers and the positions where there are runs on those things uh, tend to be the uh, areas where there's the most scarcity, where you start to panic because there's a finite number of good shortstops and you don't want to get left out. And I wonder if it's just coincidence or if you find it significant that uh, basically, you know, right, like the day after, I don't know, I guess Ryan Manson signed Maybe that, I don't know if that's the the kickoff point or what, but all of a sudden every team needed to have their, needed to lock in their reliever, basically their eighth inning guy, or in some cases ninth or in some cases seventh, but uh, needed to get that bullpen help because uh, there maybe is a feeling this is a weak class, that relievers are scarce all of a sudden, and that um, they didn't want to get left out. So do, do you think it's significant that so many of these signings essentially happened in a, 24 to 36 hour period uh, at the expense of all the other positions. I mean, we haven't heard, as Mark Norman pointed out, like you haven't heard a Justin Upton rumor all year uh-huh. and all off season. And yet like every team is going out and doing all their work to get their relievers. Like it's like almost like first area of business, get reliever. Uh, and I don't know if it's a coincidence. I don't know if it's an illusion, uh, but do you think it's significant that they've all done this uh, almost seemingly like the market was moving intelligently as, um, you know, a, a, as a, uh, what, what is that thing called? Emergence. Is it emergence? I think that's the thing about how birds and, and ants and things like that, like think they don't have to communicate. They all think the same. They think as a group, even though they're not communicating with each other. Hmm. Do you know like, that? Like that a one? hive mind that is not actually communal. Yeah, yeah, it's like a sort of a different level of intelligence and integration. Like it's like a non-communicative intelligence. Uh-huh. Well, you can do some some googling about that. <laughs> All right. So yeah, so in baseball, that would be MLB trade rumors. Basically, everyone is refreshing MLB trade rumors and seeing that other teams are acquiring relievers and figuring we better do that, or hearing that from trade trade chatter or something. It seems like not a coincidence that all those moves happen at once. I mean, Kimbrel happened. A while ago, but there has been a flurry. Maybe it has to do with some of the best starters signing also. Maybe if you're LA and you miss out on Zach Greinke and David Price has already signed, then you figure, well, we'll get an elite closer and that's the way that we'll make up for losing Zach Greinke. So maybe that's connected too. But yeah, I, I mean, it's hard to think that teams are really perceiving that much scarcity in the reliever market because it does seem like there are a lot of these guys but yeah it doesn't seem totally coincidental that this is happening all at once and happening fairly early happening you know in the first day of the meetings happening you know relative relatively early in the offseason this is not everybody waiting till february and picking up the scraps the matt Hurgises that are floating around mm-hmm. matt Hurgis being to me the 
quintessential scrap heap reliever available in February, even though he's long gone. He is very available these days. He is. Yeah. So I, and the other consideration is the human factor, the soft factor of acquiring multiple elite relievers, which is something that would be or would have been potentially an issue with the Dodgers. Kind of the same thing that we saw with the Nationals last year. They had Drew Storen. They went and got Jonathan Papelbon. We could, we could say that that was an early example of this same trend, perhaps. And obviously that seemed not to work out so well. That seemed to be friction. Storen was the established closer. He wasn't happy to lose his job. And there were immediate reports of friends saying Kenley Jensen wasn't going to be happy about losing his closer job, that sort of thing. So maybe you can compensate for that by giving an extension to the player, something like that. Or maybe this just won't be an issue for very much longer because teams won't be paying for saves and relievers will realize that teams aren't paying for saves and then they won't care about getting saves anymore. But that seems like something that is still some years away. So when you trade for Carson Smith, he was a guy who was closing for the Mariners last year. And so now he's not going to be closing and that's going to impact his arbitration earnings. If you're Carson Smith, maybe you're not totally thrilled that you're getting buried behind Craig Kimbrell, but there's nothing you can do about that because you're Carson Smith and it's your second year in the big leagues and you're a team's property anyway. But it does seem like a a consideration that teams have to take into account if they're going to sign established closers and put them in the same bullpen. It's also the case that Smith is more valuable to the Red Sox, in one sense more valuable to the Red Sox than to another team because his arbitration costs will be so low. So the surplus value of adding Carson Smith is greater for the Red Sox than if the uh, you know Brewers signed him. Uh-huh. Yeah. So in a, in, a, in a weird way, having two of these guys is almost like signing two free agents in the offseason where your second pick that you give up isn't as yeah. valuable as the first one. Uh, so I don't know if that's a factor or not. I mean, it's uh, certainly it's well, it's, I guess it's a factor with Batances, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Signing Andrew Miller saves the Yankees, you know, theoretically, if you don't mind doing this to your player. Now, a smart team would keep its players happy by saying we're going to pay you for your performance regardless. Maybe a smart team would. Uh, maybe a, a team with a lot of money that can afford to do that would. But uh, another way of thinking about it is that if they spend $44 million on Andrew Miller and it suppresses Batance's arbitration over the next four years, arbitration uh, earnings over the next four years by, you know, $12 million, mm-hmm. Miller's like a super duper bargain now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Matt Hurges, by the way, uh, 11-year career, played every year, legitimate reliever for a, a very long time. Dates, he was signed as a free agent. All right. January 1st, April 1st, January 24th, (laughs) February 18th, November 29th, Mm. and January 16th, and January 10th. Also, uh, at one point, traded in March. So (laughs) So he was out there. That was that was get Matt Hurges if you wanted to. Yeah, complete fluke that I named a guy that that actually applied to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe he wasn't. Maybe you knew more than you thought you knew about Matt Hurges. Yeah, I, so I don't really know how we talked earlier about how relievers seem more volatile than other types of pitchers. I don't know how much of that is just the sample size. I don't know whether we've corrected for that. Like if an elite starter pitched 50 or 60 innings a year, they would swing around a bunch too, just from randomness and balls in play or facing bad, facing good opponents or whatever it is. 
So I'm not sure if you if you correct for that somehow and and you know equalize the sample sizes, then maybe relievers wouldn't look quite as volatile as we tend to think of them as. But on the other hand, it's sort of a job with just that inherent volatility. So maybe you should just pay less for it anyway, just because it's going to be 50 or 60 innings and who knows what might happen in that span of time. How Royals influenced do you think this is? If the Royals hadn't won the World Series this year or, well, or made the World year. Series in the pre... Yeah, if the Royals weren't coming off back-to-back pennants, would we be seeing this same trend? I... I I actually want to say no, and yeah. I don't know how to quantify it, and I don't know if that oversimplifies things, and, and I readily admit I might be completely wrong, but I kind of think no. Yeah, I kind of think no also. So then the question is whether we actually learned something from the Royals or whether we were just deceived by the Royals into thinking that that was the way that you build a team or that you can build a team like that if you want to, which is two different things. Yeah. Okie doke. All right. So I suppose that is it for today. You can send us emails for probably tomorrow, maybe tomorrow. Depends on what happens at the winter meetings at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Please support our sponsor, the Play Index at baseballreference.com. Use the coupon code BP when you subscribe to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. We'll be back tomorrow.